Hey, welcome to this episode of Light 'em Up. We take a deep dive on the criminal justice system, crime scene investigation, and leadership. We enlighten, educate, and empower others with the truth. Like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. Hey, I'm your host, Phil Rizzo. I'm the principal owner of Rizzo's Protective Group. We are a high-risk security consulting firm headquartered out of Akron, Ohio, and with offices in the Bronx, New York, and Cerro Alto, the Dominican Republic. Hey, as we put the ball on the tee to line things up for kickoff, we speak life, health, and prosperity over each and every one of you, and we want to thank you for joining us. Tonight, on this explosive and investigative edition of Light 'em Up, we examine the hotly debated subject of consent decrees. It seems like a never-ending national crisis has exposed deep, unyielding chasms in the relationship between local police departments and the communities they're charged with protecting and serving all across our nation. Unfortunately, the facts show that the police have a long and checkered track record of not being very good at policing themselves. Who then shall police the police? In Latin, the phrase quis custodiet ipsos custodes means exactly what it says. Who will guard the guards themselves? Who will police the police? On this episode, we will define what a consent decree is, examine the purpose that they serve in 21st century policing, and as education is always a key component of Light 'em Up, we will educate and empower you with the background on why Congress gave the DOJ authority to address systemic police misconduct, how it opens pattern and practice investigations, and what an investigation involves. We'll shed light on the role of a monitor and their specific duties that they oversee in the consent decree process and pattern and practice investigatory process as well. We'll highlight the arguments of a vociferous group of naysayers of the DOJ who with their conspiracy-filled rhetoric foment and further hatred for the federal government just as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers do. These people are detractors of the federal government. They not only want to halt the practice of consent decrees, but their venomous ramblings sound as if they also want to hurt career professionals within the DOJ, which is a behavior that is clearly criminal in nature. Hey, the pursuit of justice is a slow and methodical process. There are costs involved with seeking justice. Justice comes to those that fight, not those that cry. And the fact of the matter is, is that the truth is essential to our democracy and there aren't two sides to the truth. Hey, gather round because we're here to tell it loud and proud as we know that the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately the truth delivers. We'll uncover the facts, not the fiction, regarding the behind-the-scenes specifics of consent decrees. George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in May of 2020 reignited a national conversation about how to reduce policing's harms, especially the disproportionate harm policing causes to black, Latino, Latina, and Latinx and indigenous people in the United States. 
One of the many questions raised during this discussion is how the federal government might play an effective role in reining in police abuses and reshaping policy. This topic is a veritable minefield at best, given that policing in this country is perhaps the most decentralized in the world. Organized primarily not at the federal or even state level, but rather at the local, city and county level. At the same time, we need for the federal protection from civil rights violations by the state, especially the right not to be mistreated because of one's race or ethnicity, has been long recognized, resulting in the creation of the Civil Rights Division within the U.S. Department of Justice, and the passage of many federal civil rights laws have been created by the Civil Rights Division within the DOJ which, going forward, we'll refer to as the DOJ. With that as a backdrop, we begin with a few historical facts to set the stage. The U.S. Department of Justice, DOJ, is the government agency responsible for enforcing the Constitution and the laws of the United States federal government. The Civil Rights Division of the DOJ was created in 1957 by the enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1957. The Civil Rights Division works to uphold the civil and constitutional rights of all persons in the United States, particularly some of the most vulnerable members of our society. During those tumultuous times, scarred by racial tension and unrest in our country, the Civil Rights Act of 1957 was the first civil rights legislation since Reconstruction after the U.S. Civil War. The act established the civil rights section of the DOJ and empowered federal prosecutors to obtain court injunctions against interference with the right to vote. With this episode, we endeavor to detail and discuss facts and processes that we hope works towards deterring potential future misconduct by acting as a nationwide reminder to law enforcement and other public officials of the constitutional limits on their authority and power and by educating and empowering you, our listener. Our focus tonight will be on consent decrees. To kick things off, you may be thinking, what is a consent decree? You can think of a consent decree as a contract, just like a contract between two people. Contracts are beneficial. The main purpose of a contract is to formalize new relationships and outline the various legal obligations each party owes to the other. Consent decrees are mutually binding agreements between two parties, in this case, the DOJ and the local law enforcement agency. A consent decree is a legal and binding court order that establishes an enforceable plan for sustainable reform within a police department. However, it's important to keep in mind that there are consent decrees that take place in other areas other than policing, such as the environment and educational settings. Typically, consent decrees are detailed documents that include specific requirements and deadlines for action. Police consent decrees in cities around the U.S. have required an independent monitor. The independent monitor needs to be approved by a federal judge. Once the federal judge approves the independent monitor, that monitor is charged with measuring the police department's progress by making sure the police department implements the changes required in the consent decree. 
the independent monitor reports to the federal judge. The federal judge oversees the police department's compliance with the consent decree and holds the department and the city accountable for satisfying the consent decree's requirements. Hey, if the truth were being told, this is a key facet of the process that the majority of police brass and officers do not like being held accountable. Keep in mind the fact that no person is above the law. Not one. Not even a former or current president of the United States. In the case of police consent decrees, they are employed when the government, through the DOJ, has determined that one of the 18,000 police departments in the nation have crossed a line in terms of conduct towards citizens, often in grave and serious ways. Now you may be wondering, why is a consent decree needed? Entering a consent decree with a state or local government entity may be appropriate if one or more of the following factors is present. For example, number one, when a local law enforcement agency has an established history of recalcitrance or is known to be unlikely to perform because of, for example, it has violated other related administrative orders, judicial orders, settlement agreements, or consent decrees. For example, secondly, when the law enforcement agency has unlawfully attempted to obstruct the investigation. And thirdly, when the law enforcement agency has engaged in a pattern or practice of deprivation of rights or other violations of federal law and other remedies have proven ineffective such that ensuring compliance without the ongoing supervision of a court is unrealistic. Now again, it's important to note that neither the presence nor absence of any one of these factors nor any particular combination thereof will guarantee approval of a consent decree. The determination will be made based on analysis of the law and facts applicable in each case. Now for purposes of clarity, it is essential that we define specific different aspects to the consent decree process. Just like stairs that make up a staircase in your home, there are different specific steps in the process. The first addresses pattern or practice investigation and civil actions. The Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice is responsible for enforcing federal laws that prohibit state and local law enforcement officers from engaging in a pattern or practice of conduct which violates the constitutional or federal statutory rights of community members as codified and described in 34 U.S.C. section 12601, specifically describes regarding unlawful conduct. For example, attorneys in the Civil Rights Division are authorized to investigate local law enforcement agencies whose personnel are allegedly involved in using excessive force, conducting unlawful searches and arrests, or engaging in racial or disability discrimination, among other violations as well. Now, in those cases, attorneys from the division's special litigation section can gather evidence to determine whether officers have engaged in a pattern or practice of unlawful conduct and whether an agency has unlawful policies like inadequate training or other deficiencies which contributed to the pattern or practice of systemic violations. At the conclusion of its investigation, the department issues a report of its findings, sometimes referred to as a findings letter. 
and provides the local jurisdiction an opportunity to respond to the allegations. The department also invites the local jurisdiction to work with it to craft appropriate remedies to resolve the identified concerns. If the local jurisdiction and department have agreed upon a set of reforms to address the alleged allegations, they may enter into a civil consent decree or an out-of-court settlement agreement. Secondly, there are civil consent decrees. The department may file a civil lawsuit seeking a judicial order to require the agency to change its policies, procedures, training, or other deficiencies to ensure that the constitutional rights of its community members are protected. In cases where the department can prove a pattern or practice of illegal conduct by a local or state agency, the parties may negotiate and enter into a formal agreement known as a civil consent decree, or simply a consent decree, which is entered as a court order and overseen by a local federal judge. The consent decree identifies the particular reforms necessary to address the allegations of illegal conduct and an agreement by the local jurisdiction to implement the necessary changes. A court-appointed independent monitor measures and reports on the progress implementing the consent decree's requirements and whether the local jurisdiction is in compliance. Now, when the court finds that the local jurisdiction has complied with the consent decree's provisions, it may end the decree and the terms of the court's order. If, however, the court finds that the local jurisdiction is in violation of the terms of the consent decree, the court can find the jurisdiction in contempt and institute penalties. The process can reach a stage that involves a settlement agreement. Now, in some cases, rather than filing a lawsuit in federal court and entering into a consent decree, the department and local jurisdiction may enter into an out-of-court settlement agreement. Unlike a consent decree, which is directly overseen by the court and an independent monitor, in a settlement agreement, the parties assess the local jurisdiction's compliance with the agreement without court involvement. If the local jurisdiction or police department breaches the settlement agreement, the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ, the department must file a lawsuit to enforce the agreement's provisions in court. There also is a detailed step which may involve a Memorandum of Agreement, or a MOA. Again, MOA, Memorandum of Agreement. And in some cases, the Department of Justice may resolve a pattern or practice finding by entering into a Memorandum of Agreement, MOA, with the local jurisdiction enforceable in federal court as a contract between the parties. This typically occurs only when the issues to be addressed are relatively narrow and there is significant evidence that the jurisdiction has the capacity to accomplish and sustain the needed reforms without court oversight and can do so within a reasonable period of time. An MOA may also be a method to address specific issues when the Department of Justice does not find a pattern or practice which violates the law, but there are problems that both the federal government and local jurisdiction are willing to work together to resolve through technical assistance, for example, training or other methods. While enforceable in federal court, if the department or local jurisdiction breaches the terms of the MOA, the MOA is not necessarily filed in court. 
Such agreements, however, may form the basis of the terms of a settlement agreement, which is filed in court, but unlike a consent decree, does not require ongoing court involvement and oversight. Also, there's an aspect that covers technical assistance, or TA. The department often makes available technical assistance to the local jurisdiction to address issues identified during a pattern or practice investigation or after a findings letter has been issued. The technical assistance is provided through various components of the department, including the Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, COPS Office, COPS, and the Bureau of Justice Assistance, BJA, which are separate from the Civil Rights Division and considered complementary efforts to improving policing in local jurisdictions. Now, an agreement to provide technical assistance may be reflected in a memorandum of agreement, settlement agreement, or terms of a consent decree and do not require a department finding of a pattern or practice of unconstitutional conduct or violation of federal law. It's important to point out that there also is an aspect of the process entitled a post-judgment order. A post-judgment order is typically when the court has entered judgment against a local jurisdiction and then entered an order requiring the parties to perform a specific action. These actions may include changes in policies, procedures, hiring practices, or other actions to address the violations found by the judge. And lastly, but certainly not least, in its overall importance in the process, there is an aspect that closes out the process without agreement. In cases where the department does not find sufficient evidence or a pattern or practice of unlawful conduct or other violation of federal law, the local jurisdiction is notified and the case is closed out without the necessity of a lawsuit, consent decree, or other agreement. The DOJ may take no further their action, concluding that the incident which led them to open the investigation was the result of an individual's action and not indicative of structural problems within the department. Or, as we just mentioned before, on the other hand, the DOJ may issue a technical assistance letter in which it details the policies it advises such departments to adopt. Such letters are not enforceable in court. If, on the other hand, the DOJ determines that a technical assistance letter is not sufficient to address the pattern or practice of misconduct found in the police department, it can use a consent decree to implement the reforms it deems necessary. The court-appointed monitor represents a further degree of scrutiny brought to bear on the department. You may be wondering, what issues does the consent decree address? The consent decree can address a wide range of areas. Specifically, the consent decree addresses key areas of reform, including, but not limited to, the use of force and excessive force, for example, conducting unlawful searches, seizures or arrests, and engaging in racial or disability discrimination, community policing or impartial or racially biased policing, Crisis intervention training, which is crucial, especially for the calls where a person may be spiraling downward in a mental health crisis. Also recruitment, hiring, and promotion, as well as training, supervision, officer wellness and support is crucial to the process, along with accountability and transparency, data collection, analysis, and management, just to reference a few areas of intense focus. Now, more than 200 years ago, 
Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay published a series of essays promoting the ratification of the United States Constitution, now known as the Federalist Papers. In explaining the need for an independent judiciary, Alexander Hamilton noted in the Federalist No. 78 that the federal courts were designed to be an intermediate body between the people and their legislature in order to ensure that the people's representatives acted only within the authority given to Congress under the Constitution. In 1994, Congress gave the federal government unprecedented power to intervene against police misconduct among state and local law enforcement agencies. Consent decrees between the DOJ and local law enforcement agencies arose from one of the truly ugly incidents in our nation's history, the Los Angeles police beating of Rodney King on March 3, 1991 by Supervisory Officer Sergeant Stacy Kuhn, Lawrence Powell, Theodore Briseño, and Timothy Wind, all of the Los Angeles Police Department. The video of the beating of Rodney King sparked widespread public outrage. These LAPD officers' acquittal on state criminal charges in 1992 triggered riots in Los Angeles and protests across the nation. Now, if you're old enough, you viewed this in real time. Later on, two of the officers involved were successfully prosecuted on federal charges by the criminal section of the DOJ Civil Rights Division. An independent commission linked the beating of Mr. King to institutional failure within the Los Angeles Police Department and Congress held hearings on how the federal government could do more to address police misconduct. Following that series of events in 1994, Congress authorized the Attorney General to investigate and litigate cases involving a pattern or practice of conduct by law enforcement officers that violates constitutional or federal rights. Under this authority, the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ may obtain a court order requiring state or local law enforcement agencies to address institutional failures that cause systemic police misconduct. These cases are commonly referred to inside the DOJ and Civil Rights Division as pattern or practice cases or 14141 cases after the section of the United States Code codifying this authority found at 42 U.S.C. section 14141. Pattern or practice cases are investigated, litigated, and resolved by the Special Litigation Section of the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ, sometimes assisted by the local United States Attorney's Office as well. Section 14141 of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, commonly referred to as the 1994 Crime Bill or the Clinton Crime Bill, declares it is unlawful for law enforcement agencies to engage in a pattern or practice that deprives persons of rights, privileges, or immunities protected by U.S. law and Statute 42, U.S.C. Section 14141. The provision enables DOJ to obtain equitable relief to eliminate police misconduct and other forms of civil rights violations. Section 14141's passage in 1994 represented a pivotal and new turning point in civil rights legislation. This policy allows civilians and the DOJ to initiate lawsuits explicitly targeting law enforcement agencies. Such legal standing was not previously afforded to concerned parties 
under other civil rights provisions. As earlier referenced, Congress passed the measure following the release of video footage showing Los Angeles police officers beating Rodney King and public outcry over the few mechanisms for police accountability available at the time. Federal intervention under Section 14141 takes several forms that reflect varying needs of civil rights enforcement. In brief, federal efforts to address police misconduct proceed in five stages. For example, case selection, initial inquiry, formal investigation, settlement negotiation, and monitored reform. The DOJ first identifies possible cases of police misconduct among the nearly 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. Initiation of DOJ intervention may come in response to civilian complaints or media attention to problematic policing activities. As an example, recently, Representative Amelia Sykes, Democrat of the 13th Congressional District for Northeastern Ohio, sent a letter to DOJ officials calling for investigation of Akron, Ohio's police patterns and practices in order to enhance public safety and the community's trust in our sworn officers, as the letter detailed. This action arose out of the brutal killing of Jalen Walker by eight Akron police officers, where Walker was shot at 94 times and hit with 45 police rounds. DOJ interventions generally begin with an investigation to establish whether there has been a pattern or practice of misconduct in the police department as alleged. In order for the Civil Rights Division's police reform work to be more accessible and transparent, typically a pattern or practice case starts out with examples and explanations for why the division is approaching its work in accordance with the following three overall themes. First off, the division's pattern or practice cases focus on systemic police misconduct rather than isolated instances of wrongdoing. They also focus on the responsibilities of law enforcement agencies and local governments rather than on individual officers. An investigation most often consists of a comprehensive analysis of the policies and practices of policing in a particular community, although an investigation may also focus on a specific area of policing practice. The division conducts a thorough and independent investigation into allegations of police misconduct and substantiates any conclusions it draws with evidence set forth in its public findings. If the division finds a pattern or practice of police misconduct, it issues findings in the form of a letter or report made available to the local jurisdiction and the public. After making findings, the division negotiates reform agreements resolving those findings, usually in the form of a consent decree, overseen by a federal court and an independent monitoring team. The lead independent monitor is appointed by the court and usually agreed upon by both the division and the investigated party, but reports directly to the court. If an agreement cannot be negotiated, the division will bring a lawsuit to compel needed reforms. When the court finds that the law enforcement agency has accomplished and sustained the requirements of the reform agreement, the case is terminated. This, however, can take time. In recent years, the division's reform agreements have included data-driven outcome measures designed to provide clear and objective standards for measuring success and determining whether the law enforcement agency has met the objectives of the agreement.
at each stage of a pattern or practice case, from investigation through resolution, the Civil Rights Division takes great pains to emphasize engagement, engagement, and engagement. Those are the facts. I know this specifically and firsthand with a wide variety of stakeholders, including, but not limited to, community members and people who have been victims of police misconduct or live in the neighborhoods most impacted by police misconduct, as well as police leadership, rank-and-file officers, police labor organizations, and local political leaders. Each of these groups brings a different and important perspective and plays a critical role in accomplishing and sustaining police reform. In keeping with the focus on systemic problems, the division's reform agreements emphasize institutional reforms, such as improving systems for supervising officers and holding them accountable for misconduct, while simultaneously ensuring officers have the policy guidance, training, equipment, and other resources necessary for constitutional and effective policing and creating and using data about police activity to identify and correct patterns of police misconduct and institutionalizing law enforcement agencies' engagement with and accountability to the community. Since 1994, the Department of Justice, DOJ, has investigated and brought suit against law enforcement agencies engaging in a pattern or practice of police misconduct prohibited in 42 U.S.C. 14141. Most federal interventions end in settlement agreements that require agencies to redress constitutional violations. Despite Section 14141's promise for increasing police accountability and improving the administration of justice, less is understood about what types of reforms appear in agreements and how federal interventions have responded to policing issues over time and the scope and character of pattern or practice agreements in two ways. Some of the preferred reforms range from improving community relations and providing more training to reducing bias as we itemized before. An analysis of the relevant data showed a growth in the number of agreements and reform measures from the Clinton administration to the Obama administration. More recent agreements emphasize engaging communities in reform efforts, enhancing civilian review and complaint systems, and regulating the use of specific forms of force. These results illuminate the changing nature of federal responses to police misconduct due to policy learning and partisan shifts. Here's a little history for you. The first pattern or practice policing case brought under Section 14141 was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In January 1997, following nearly a year-long investigation, the division issued a letter to the city of Pittsburgh finding a pattern or practice of excessive force, false arrests, and improper searches and seizures grounded in a lack of adequate discipline for misconduct and a failure to supervise officers. The parties negotiated a resolution and jointly entered into a court-ordered reform agreement overseen by an independent monitor that was in effect from April 1997 until September of 2002 with ongoing monitoring through 2005. The Vera Institute of Justice conducted an independent, extensively researched assessment of that effort in Pittsburgh after it concluded describing it as a success story for local police management and and for federal intervention. 
Since then, the division has opened 69 formal investigations and entered into 40 reform agreements to bring much-needed change to police departments. The list has grown as the need for overall oversight has grown as well. However, if the truth be told, much has changed since the division's first initiatives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, under Section 14141. The division's process for conducting pattern or practice cases and the model the division uses to design effective reforms has evolved as the division has responded to feedback from, say, for example, stakeholders, including state and local law enforcement, as well as developments in the social science of police reform and lessons from its own experience in this field. In that sense, the Pittsburgh Consent Decree and many of the early reform agreements that followed it reflect a different era in the division's history. A focus on fixing broken systems and building police community trust remain the consistent themes of the division's pattern or practice police reform. But the methods for fixing those systems and restoring that trust, as well as the means for assessing the success of those methods, have evolved significantly. Hey, let's just say the Civil Rights Division's current process for involvement and its model for reform looks much different from its inception. Now, some of you may be thinking that the DOJ-mandated police reforms are mostly needed in big cities or in certain parts of the country. But evidence shows that this need is much broader than that, affecting cities and towns large and small in every portion of the U.S. A partial listing of cities or localities that were found to be engaging in patterns or practices of discriminatory policing which required consent decrees includes Newark, New Jersey, Ferguson, Missouri, Miami, Florida, Cleveland, Ohio, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Portland, Oregon, Suffolk County, New York, New Orleans, Louisiana, Los Angeles, California, Seattle, Washington, Yonkers, New York, the Alamance County, North Carolina Sheriff's Office, Lauderdale County, Meridian, Mississippi, Maricopa County, Arizona, L.A. County, Antelope Valley, California, San Juan, Puerto Rico, East Haven, Connecticut, Warren, Ohio, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and Springfield, Massachusetts. Cities with open pattern or practice cases included Colorado City, Arizona, Hildale, Utah, Ville Platte, Louisiana, Chicago, Illinois, Baltimore, Maryland, the Office of the District Attorney, Orange County, California Sheriff's Department, Memphis, Tennessee, and Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, and also for your most detailed and up-to-the-moment information, we reference those municipalities that are currently under consent decrees in our liner notes for this episode. And at the time of going to air with this specific episode, the division had recently announced a pattern and practice investigation in Louisville, Kentucky, stemming from the Breonna Taylor case, and Minneapolis, Minnesota with the killing of George Floyd. So you can see clearly, the need is massive and ongoing. So as we take a moment just to catch our breath, it's important that we shift gears just a little bit and focus our attention on the role of the independent monitor in the consent decree process. 
Some settlement agreements and consent decrees with state and local government entities may involve the use of a monitor. The Department of Justice has a significant interest in ensuring that the monitor selected is independent, highly qualified, and free of conflicts of interest. Monitors serve a crucial role as an independent validator of a jurisdiction's progress in implementing the reforms required by a settlement. They are generally selected after an extensive negotiation between the parties with approval by the supervising federal court. Because they are officers of the court, monitors act as neutral arbiters of a jurisdiction's compliance with a decree, a process that can increase the confidence the court and stakeholders have in the settlement process. The monitor and his or her team play many different roles. One role, as we mentioned, is that of an arbiter. The consent decree indicates that the monitor will assess and report whether the requirements of this agreement have been implemented and whether this implementation is resulting in constitutional and effective policing, professional treatment of individuals, and increased community trust of the police department under scrutiny. This means that the monitor reviews, provides feedback on, and ultimately recommends approval or disapproval to the court of changes in policy, training, procedure, for example, and other practices within the division of police under scrutiny, regardless of where it's located in the nation. A second role is that of a technical advisor. A monitoring team's goal generally is for the division of police to benefit from the decades of law enforcement monitoring and organizational change experience of the team's members. As the Division of Police crafts new policies or revamps particular practices, the monitoring team, wherever possible, provides information about best practices and discusses what has worked and not worked well in other cities to address similar issues and make expectations clear from the beginning. The team's goal is for efficient and effective progress, with the ultimate goals never a surprise. Another role of the monitoring team is that of facilitator. The consent decree involves a host of interrelated reforms to ensure that all stakeholders from within the police division and across the community are heard and can participate in the consent decree process. The monitoring team works with the city, police division, DOJ, and court to provide a framework and process for implementing the decree. Likewise, the monitoring team will organize and lead meetings, summits and discussions, and educational forums throughout the city aimed towards involving the community in all aspects of the reform process. The monitor and the monitoring team are not a substitute for the chief of police or the director of public safety, the mayor, or city council. At the same time, the monitoring team is not an arm of the DOJ. Instead, it serves as truly independent monitors and an agent of the federal court overseeing the consent decree. Likewise, the team does not have the authority, jurisdiction, or ability to take specific actions on particular cases or incidents. The team cannot bring criminal charges against either citizens or police officers. It is not a substitute for local prosecutors. Likewise, the team cannot intervene in employment or disciplinary issues within the division of police. It's not a substitute for for the formal disciplinary process and cannot override the decisions of the division of police, the city, or arbitrators. 
However, the team is charged with assessing whether the division is effectively implementing the overall systemic changes to how it functions that the consent decree requires. This will include changes to how the division's internal investigations of officer behavior and performance function, including the disciplinary system as well. In short, the monitor is charged with overseeing overall long-term reforms required by the consent decree so that in the future, policing in the city is effective, safe, and constitutional, and consistent with the values of the city's diverse communities. Hey, we've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time, and as we round third base heading for home, you might be wondering how long will the consent decree last once it is approved? Now, by law, the consent decree must stay in place until a federal judge determines that the police department has implemented and maintained the reforms mandated in the consent decree. The length of time this takes, however, depends on how rapidly and how well the city and police department work to implement the reforms. The consent decree must include specific and measurable actions that trigger the decree's termination. In addition, the consent decree must include a sunset provision, providing that regardless of the decree's specific requirements, the decree terminates upon a showing by the defendant, which again in this case would be the city and the police department, that it has come into durable compliance with the federal law that gave rise to the decree in the first place. The consent decree must also provide for partial termination when the state or local government can demonstrate durable compliance with particular provisions of the consent decree. Hey, while many listeners may feel that holding police agencies accountable and ensuring that they perform constitutional, unbiased policing is something that everyone would agree is positive and uncontroversial. There does in fact exist a vocal group of critics who oppose the very idea of DOJ consent decrees with local police agencies. The case against consent decrees, it's been argued that there is no rhyme or reason as to why the DOJ launches these investigations. Also, that the DOJ is the real culprit in violating the U.S. Constitution, and they blindside and sandbag all the interested parties. And they say that most law enforcement agencies are worse off when they get out from under a consent decree than when they went into it. Also, these detractors argue that there's no tangible benefit to the department, community, the city, or public safety in having the DOJ come in and force these reforms, especially for those agencies that are willing to reform themselves. Also, that an astronomical financial burden is placed on a city that harms the entire system, and that the only people who benefit from the implementation of a consent decree is the federal judge, the attorneys in the Civil Rights Division, and the monitors who get paid handsomely for their services. They go on to argue that the entire process disincentivizes officers from doing their already very difficult jobs, as well as they argue that cops disengage and make fewer stops and public safety suffers as officer engagement becomes less and less. You know, in the polarized United States of America, in the social media and talk radio obsessed political culture that has developed in the past two decades, where each faction has its favored cable news outlet, some of these criticisms have gone a bit too far, in my humble opinion, into personal attacks and conspiracy theory-fueled vitriol that can have serious real-world impacts, as the whole world witnessed on January 6, 2021, at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. 
In certain of these outlets, the criticism is steady, constant, and vociferous against the DOJ, and specifically its Civil Rights Division and its oversight and pattern and practice investigations of police departments. Hey, the fact of the matter is, is that with the time we have allotted, we cannot examine each and every one of these criticisms, as some are rather difficult to measure. But we do suggest much of this criticism is off the mark. We don't allow regular citizens to police themselves. We have police departments to do that. Because as we've seen over generations, some people are prone to commit crimes and break laws and even hurt people. Police departments are comprised of a bunch of those regular people, prone to the same faults as the rest of us. And we shouldn't expect police agencies to police themselves. This is unrealistic, and the actions of far too many police departments have proven that some get off track and need oversight and reform. The DOJ fulfills this vital role, at times with pattern and practice investigations and consent decrees. You know, let's pause for just a moment and try to imagine the Bull Connor style and manner of justice that we would have in place were we to be without this courageous department and its more than 115,000 dedicated employees spread out over 40 component organizations headed up by Kristen Clark, Assistant U.S. Attorney General. Like it or not, we've arrived where we've arrived. While our state and local governments are in a battle royale, caged wrestling match with the question of how to re-engineer and reimagine the relationship between law enforcement and the communities they are charged with protecting and serving, the DOJ has no other choice but to be forced into the fray of trying to address these perplexing issues head-on in sadly far too many jurisdictions across our great nation. You know, it's only unless the DOJ detractors and naysayers actually approve of the violation of others' civil rights under the color of authority should anyone expect anything less by the government than to labor to protect the rights of often particularly some of the most vulnerable members of our society. Contrary to the rantings of some of the more extreme DOJ detractors and naysayers, these dedicated public servants are officers of the court. They're not in cahoots against local law enforcement officers. The special litigation section within the DOJ consists of honest, courageous, dedicated career professional attorneys with many decades of collective experience working on police reform cases. They are specialists in the field of criminal justice reform and have worked with police departments large and small to address the wide range of issues and challenges in modern policing and bring about lawful and effective police practices. The special litigation section also has experienced investigators and community outreach specialists to assist in gathering information needed to ensure the integrity and thoroughness of the division's investigations and reform efforts. These people aren't just out there making it up as they go along as some would have you to believe. There is a rule of law and rules within the court system that all are required to follow. You know, critics of this process seem to conveniently overlook the fact that in a great many of cases, interested stakeholders in the localities themselves ask for DOJ intervention. This isn't a process that comes randomly to cities and towns. It results from real-world excesses and real-world concerns that what has happened to one citizen could be happening to others, and that we owe it to society to investigate to ensure that those charged with protecting and serving us aren't breaking laws and violating civil rights in order to enforce laws. 
And remember, no one is going to jail stemming from a pattern and practice investigation, so the protection of having the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt does not apply. Federal government scrutiny of local law enforcement is brought about by the actions of those local officers who abuse the authority granted by their badge. Keeping the blame on the DOJ is misplaced. Look to the officers and police brass that tolerate bad policing practices if you're looking to place blame. You know, this is a very complex and highly technical process, to say the least. There are more than 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. As we certainly know, law enforcement is a demanding, rigorous, and at times dangerous, as well as deadly profession. And while the vast majority of men and women who police our communities do so with professionalism, respect, bravery, and integrity, as we've seen around the country, when police departments engage in unconstitutional policing, their actions can severely undermine both community trust and public safety. Solutions in 2023 America rarely are perfect. While a consent decree with an independent monitor to evaluate the progress of reform and with oversight by a federal judge isn't a perfect process, it has proven to be necessary and a transparent way to put in place new practices that protect city residents and ensure constitutional policing in cities around the country. The fact of the matter is, is that change never comes without suffering. Anything that can change unconstitutional policing into constitutional policing is a welcomed outcome. Consent decrees have proven to be a viable and decisive way to ensure that police departments in the U.S. strip away any practices and systemic abuses that have become normalized. They are also still very much needed, as evidenced by far too many incidents involving names we've sadly come to know for truly tragic reasons. Names like... Rodney King, Abner Luima, Dante Wright, Laquan McDonald, George Floyd, and Tyree Nichols. These men were real people who suffered terrible harms. You can't simply sweep their rights under the rug. Silence is acquiescence. Consent decrees are a means for law enforcement officials in violation to realign themselves with the honor codes and duties of their profession with the help of the federal government and other parties dedicated to criminal justice. They are considered by many to be a vital building block towards regaining trust and respect from the communities they serve. To refrain from issuing consent decrees and to eradicate criminal justice reform successes that were established in the past decades may erode trust and create more division between law enforcement and the people they are sworn to serve. Trust between law enforcement agencies and the people they protect and serve is essential in democracy. It is key to the stability of our communities, the integrity of our criminal justice system, and the safe and effective delivery of policing services. It's very simple. Any detractors of consent decrees can petition their representative of Congress for the law to be abolished. Consent decrees have and serve a purpose. You simply can't have Sheriff Bull Connor running your city. Those days are thankfully gone for good, even though there are some who would like to bring those days back into fruition. Hey, I want to thank you for your time and for your detailed attention. This process isn't easy, but trust me when I tell you, unfortunately, it is necessary. Hey, I'm Phil Rizzo, and you've got Light 'em Up. 
Hey, I want to thank my friends at Innisfree for their promotional products and underwriting. Their fresh-squeezed hydrating green tea loaded with amino acids and antioxidants help replenish and neutralize skin for that natural glow. Want to know the best part? Their tea is organically grown and chosen for skincare from 3,301 Korean native green tea varieties. The winning 1-2-3 punch combination consists of the youth enhancing serum with black tea. Then you just dap, 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 a little bit of the eye serum underneath your eyes. And finally, the enhancing cream. Oh my goodness. Like Muhammad Ali used to say, I'm pretty, I'm still pretty. They offer innovative beauty solutions for men, also powered by the finest natural ingredients responsibly sourced from Korea's pristine Jeju Island. Their proprietary extraction methods preserve the purity and potency of these wholesome ingredients from plant to bottle to your skin, offering advanced formulas that safely address all skin concerns without the use of harmful chemicals and preservatives. With the wonders of nature at the heart of Innisfree, they take care to preserve and protect the environment in all that they do. We want to thank our friends at Innisfree for their promotional products and underwriting of Light 'em Up. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube and Instagram at Rizzo's Protective Group. We're very excited about being ranked 10th out of the top 35 criminal justice podcasts as ranked and listed by Feedspot. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to Feedspot at www.feedspot.com. And please, por favor, per favore, visit our friends at https colon slash slash newsly.me. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. You can browse articles from topics you choose and start playing. Hey, stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you like from sports, science, to Bitcoin. It'll find you the latest articles and read them to you. Hey, it's as easy as that. And to top it off, they have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 50 countries. Our podcast, Light 'em Up, is there too. I started using it as my default podcast app, and you can too. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the podcast description liner notes and use the promo code LIGHTEMUP. And LIGHTEMUP in this case is spelled L, the number one, G-H-T-E-M-U-P. All one word. That's L, the number one, G-H-T-E-M-U-P. All one word.